Uh, before we begin today's episode, uh, I have some sad news to report. Uh, a comrade of ours was tragically killed in a crash on the highway early Sunday morning. Uh, Cecilia Escobar Duplan was returning from a night shift in security at Westchester University when she came upon a single vehicle accident on southbound I-95 in Wilmington. Uh, she stopped on the Delaware Avenue uh, exit ramp to attempt to assist uh, the distressed driver, and while doing so, she was struck by another vehicle. Uh, she was taken to hospital where she unfortunately passed away. Uh, Cecilia was a firefighter and was a paramedic in training. She worked part-time in university security while attending school. Cecilia was also an active organizer on Network Delaware Issue Campaigns. Um, she was 25 years old. Uh, solidarity and sincere condolences to her family uh, and everyone in her organizing circles who loved her. Comrades and friends, hello. This is Rob in the Shadow of Rockford Tower bringing you the Highlands Bunker podcast. Today is the fifth installment of the Delaware Justice Team series. All the episodes in this series have been produced in collaboration with the Delaware Call and the ACLU of Delaware. Special thanks to Morgan Keller uh, at the ACLU for doing uh, so much of the heavy lifting on these. We very much appreciate it. Thank you, Morgan. Uh, Super producer Carl is on as always. And our guests today are first Charito Calvici Makeko. Makeko. I, ma- <laughs> I murdered it, didn't I? Uh, Charito Calvacci Mateco. Mateco. Charito Calvacci Mateco. Mateco. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Um, I do that very often. Uh, I do apolo- I apologize to people uh, uh, very often for, for hacking it up pretty badly. Thank you very much. Uh, Charito has spent her professional career studying, mastering, and implementing Uh, Methods to Promote Peace and Justice Within Society. She has worked in Spanish-language radio and is an advocate for restorative justice and for voting rights. Uh, I am pleased to welcome her to the Highlands Bunker podcast. Hello. Hello. I am very happy to be here. It's always good to to connect with the audience, whether you are um, um, Latino, non-Latino, and from other uh, origins. It's beautiful to talk about important issues, and I'm really happy that uh, you have invited me. Well, thank you so much for for taking the time. Uh, Also joining us today is Ronnie Balthazar-Lopez. Ronnie is a member of the Milford School Board and a board member of the ACLU of Delaware. Uh, He was featured in an interview on the Delaware Call last fall during Hispanic Heritage Month. It was focused on education issues in the Latinx and Hispanic community. He is also uh, in high demand. Uh, He just returned from the Iowa State Fair. I saw some photos of that. I assume he's prepping for a presidential run uh, out there. I also spotted uh, photos of him at Medina Wilson Anton's fundraising launch for her reelection campaign with the likes of Lisa Blunt Rochester and Matt Meyer. So uh, I think something's cooking. We're going to get to the bottom of it with Ronnie. Uh, But I'm very happy um, to welcome him also to uh, the podcast. How are you? Thanks for having me and Chetito on. No problem. Thank you. Um, I always like to start with um, with background because I find it fascinating um, how people grew up, where they're from, because I really think there's a lot of stories there that sort of um, instruct how someone comes to uh, to live sort of a public life or try to um, try to do activism, advocacy, organizing uh, and public service. Um, So, uh, Chirito, maybe first you can talk about 
um, sort of your background, what, what, what it was like, and, and how you came to, uh, to do sort of public-oriented service? Well, I come from Ecuador, from a huge family of 12 siblings. And, and that really marked everything that I do in my life. Because, uh, for example, my parents had already seven children. And they said, that's good enough. So they did, my mother and they together decided to stop having children. And my mother started taking uh, birth control pills. For six years, no children. This called the attention of um, the nuns and the priests that are friends of them. And they start to knock on the door and say, how is it that such a beautiful young lady have stopped having children? And um, my mother was always 11 years uh, younger than my father. So um, my mother told them the truth. And they said, you are committing a capital sin. And they didn't stop at that. They also said, and you are going to lose the children that are alive for those that you are killing. Well, <laughs> how the, the story unfolds is that I, I am four more of my brothers came to this world. So it's like two families uh, for the same, from the same parents. And uh, I, when my mother was telling me, Mommy, aren't you mad at the, at the priest telling you this? And my mother looked at me and said, you wouldn't have come. And I'm so happy that everybody else came, you know, to this world. And, uh, but that created an incredible dynamic that had shaped my profession because the older ones were the ones that protect the little ones. So I was raised in a community of protection where everybody was keeping an eye on me uh, for me to behave, for me not to harm myself. And, and that made my brothers such a mature people and make us very happy. Like we were the ones that came jumping up and down because they are around us. My profession in restorative justice in, is informed by that community. I love the sense of feeling belonging when I do circles um, in other restorative justice processes. So that is really the, the nucleus of who I am. But eventually I became to United States and um, and you know, the other thing that my parents did was to move from, they migrate from a town where it was like, you know, death. There was no activity or any source on the future. The, the streets were almost bored and empty. So my father realized he's not gonna be able to protect the family and create a future. So he moved to with my mother to a tropical town in, in Ecuador. And, he made his life, they made their life, and they they worked so hard to, for us to be, live in the capital studying, and all of us went to the university. So for me, that is the story that shapes what I do for my community, because every one of them are my parents, are my siblings. And I have been dedicated to the Latino community in many shapes and forms. It had been an honor to be able to connect the in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, I was um, I had a radio program for 15 years, and then I moved, and now I have a radio program as a member of the Delaware Hispanic Commission, chair of the Botamos We Vote Coalition. We started with voting um, segments, and then now we are broader. It's called Entre Nosotras, 
uh, among ourselves, where we hear the stories of undocumented people. And of course, Ronnie couldn't be missed. And he told us a beautiful story about his parents. And he said something that resonates in me, who I am to be afraid of studying and succeeding. When my parents came here without a language, without anything in their pockets, who I am to be afraid if they were not. So those are the kind of stories that continue inspiring me as a leader of the community. And I say that leader in the sense that, because you know I've been appointed by the governor, but it, I understand it as the one that actually connects with the grassroots and bring their voices. And um, yes, I think um, everything that I am, the way I serve in my heart that I connect that I connect with with the people is because of my family and my parents. Thank you. Yeah, I I, I had a feeling that um, both of you have stories, um, not not so much similar, but but both very deep. And that was a good segue into Ronnie's. I think um, maybe you can Ronnie can tell us a little bit about um, your background, uh, what it was like, and how um, you know how it kind of informed your decision to. Um, to do public service and advocacy. So everything that Charito said was really resonating with me too, as she spoke. Um, you know, I was born and raised here in, in Milford um, to a pair of immigrants who came here without basically anything. So um, just growing up was a, um, it was a challenge, uh, both because I didn't have parents who spoke English, didn't know how to navigate, um, just either the workplace or the education system for me. So I was constantly, you know, translating for them, having to voice their concerns and just having to mature way quicker than my peers at the time. And I think that sense that fostered a sense of, of public service and advocacy on my behalf, because um, it's just a phenomenon that a lot of Hispanics um, and their children have to face, right? Um, their children are, are are essentially forced to be the voice of their families, um, especially when those families don't speak English. Um, and so growing up, I uh, got that sense and um, went on to be the first in my family to go to high school, graduate from high school, go to college and graduate from college. Um, and so with all of that, my experiences and my my you know, my reality, my perspective has um, changed and go and just going into public service was just natural for me because it's always what I've done, right? Helping others, um, even though I received little in return, um, because I think that is what uh, my parents have uh, taught in me, the sense of looking out for others, even though others, you know, don't necessarily look out for you. Um, and so going into, into my, my professional career, uh, going onto the school board, I thought it was a great opportunity to advocate for, for young students, for minority students who've never really have had a person of color representing them on the school board, especially here in Milford. And so um, one of the things that I've tried to work on is, you know, reducing dropout rates, improving our graduation rates, um, and you know, fixing the barriers that disproportionately affect students of color in our energy, in our education system. And it's hard. Um, 
and it's challenging at times, but I think this is the most important work that anybody can do. Um, and for those people who are, are out there who are doing the same work, uh, you know, I commend you. And I think Charito and I both share that same sense of value of, of community service. And so, yeah, you both have from the beginning had in, instilled in you because of the context of your upbringing, that feeling of, of community and like living in a society and, and being part of a, of a larger effort to keep everybody sort of, um, together. Um, and it's so interesting because I talk about it all the time because, um, American ideas are like the opposite. I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have is this idea that everybody's by themselves. If, if you're struggling, it's your fault. Um, you should be able to find your way through it. And really what you need is, um, you know, sort of the, I think, Ronnie, you said it's the things that were instilled in you and just almost come naturally or you're able to, you're able to see um, a different way of, of proceeding like this. I think that's so important. <laughs> So I, I want to ask you, Ronnie, first, um, just because you uh, have uh, these goals on the school board and, um, and the things that you're doing, but there's a lot of what I would call um, distractions going on right now. Um, you know, there's small um, reactionary groups that are um, trying to infiltrate membership into school boards and also do sort of like issue campaigns. I say issue with the with the uh, inverted commas because the issues are like critical race theory in kindergarten and mask mandates for the spread of contagious airborne diseases. Um, I know you guys just had a meeting. Um, I I'd like to, you to just talk about briefly what kind of distractions you're getting in that, uh, and, and, and how that's sucking up your resources away from some of the other things that you ought to be doing. So, and that's a, I think that's a great question because it's, it's something that's going on, not just statewide, but nationally. I think there's this mindset that, uh, you know, that face masks and getting the COVID-19 vaccine are, are political and, you know, people are targeting our school boards across the country to make, or to make noise. And so we had our board meeting last night and um, it was one of the few board meetings where I've seen uh, more than 10 people show up. Uh, we had a whole crowd last night. Uh, most of them were anti-mask people who, you know, they have the right to, you know, provide public comment, but do I necessarily agree with what they say? No. Um, because at the end of the day, the vast majority of people who have been um, affected by the COVID-19 pandemic have been people of color. And not a lot of people talk about that, but the frontline workers throughout the pandemic have been people of color. And so when I see the rhetoric, when I hear the rhetoric, and when I see petitions like one that was circulating in my district about quote unquote unmasking our children, the vast majority of people who sign on to those are white people, people who have not really experienced the hardships of the pandemic, whether it's economically or just public health wise in terms of them getting sick. And if they have gotten sick, they don't understand the reasoning behind the, the requirements of a face mask. Most of them believe that, you know, that children don't fall severely ill. Um, but the vast, but the reality is that the reason that we have a face mask mandate is to reduce the transmission so that we don't infect those who are unvaccinated. And and to, to add to that, you know, even if you are vaccinated, 
you are still likely, you know, at some point to probably get the the, the coronavirus because it's just the Delta variant is, is, is just a variant that has just, you know, it's not similar to the COVID-19 original virus. So we have to look out for ourselves and for the safety of all our students and, and the public. Um, schools do not operate in a hub. Um, we are interconnected to our communities. And so for people who think that, you know, we should unmask our children, they're really doing a disservice to our community and for the, and those who are, are susceptible to this virus. Yeah, it's a shame because, as I said, I look at these, all of these issues, mask, vaccine, and, you know, I'm sure you'll get some critical race theory. Uh, people will be telling you that they know about it when they don't. Um, but, yeah, they're all kind of reactionary distractions. Um, as you said, it's not, uh, it's not surprising to me that, um, you know, most of the people in these uh, reactionary groups are, are white people um, because they're just mindlessly clinging to some hierarchy that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's a shame um, because I do think that, um, especially for smaller school districts uh, or, you know, more diverse ones, I think it really sucks time and resources and energy away from um, things that could be important in dealing with, um, you know, people's people being basically big babies. Um, but, yeah, definitely, um, you know, get your vaccine if you can. Wear a mask in public for now because of the variants. And also the special case being in, in schools because younger kids can't get the vaccine. Younger kids are now susceptible to the Delta variant. And it's just very important just to keep everybody safe. There's no ulterior motive. You know, there's no chip, GPS chip in the mask. We're just, we were trying to not get kids sick. That's pretty much it. So it's not that complicated. And I hope that, I hope that these small but boisterous crowds can be marginalized in some way. Anyhow, so. Uh, Chorito, my... My question for you, and I know because this is one of your big focus points, and I, I want to give you the opportunity to sort of talk about it uh, before we get into some other topics, is restorative justice. Um, can you sort of explain what that is um, and how it works within the community and your role in promoting it and, and implementing it? Okay. Thank you so much for this opportunity. So I was a lawyer. Um, I got all the degrees that I could uh, back in my country at the Catholic University in Quito, Ecuador. And through my studies, I was part of a program, the first pro bono program to for the jails and prisons in, in Quito, Ecuador. And I was able to get in, you know, open doors for all of us to help the people that were incarcerated. And Everything that I always said in my mind, I love justice. And then I always said, I hate justice. And, and I couldn't get out of that part of the, what am I doing? I love and hate this. I love and hate this. Um, I was lucky enough with the past of years to come to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And uh, through a Mennonite person, I connect with the restorative justice program. And I became a volunteer and, you know, 20 years in, in that organization um, uh, in different capacities. It became my life. And at one point I said, this is the response to what I was dealing interiorly. I love justice. I dislike the system, the way how it goes about it. And in that uh, perspective, restorative justice is a new vision of justice that 
doesn't use, doesn't use the tool of punishment. It sees justice through a perspective of peace building. And what that means is really taking care of human needs, especially those that have suffered the effects of wrongdoing, conflict of crime. Can you imagine a world in which instead of building prisons, we will be building wellness centers, uh, therapy centers, um, job career centers, because that will be the way to attend those that have suffered? Wouldn't that be a beautiful world instead of what we have built with $80 billion a year dedicated to destroy further, not only the people incarcerated, but also the officers and every judge that has to put a human being but mandate in, in those type of places. So the first thing in restorative justice centered in those that have suffered the impact, but it's open and invites those that are ready to take responsibility because this is not a system that because it doesn't use uh, punishment forgets about the actions. No, we are accountable for everything we do. So that's the second aspect, how we can help a person to make right the wrongs, but going to the root causes that created the action. You know, not like only the tip of the iceberg that the system sees. Um, then another aspect is doing it with dialogue and community. Because we are really, our brains and we as human beings are wired up to be with others in connection with others. The meaning, the identity of who we are is created in the narrative that we tell each other when others are listening. And that is trauma healing. So in community in dialogue, in dialogue is another aspect. And the other one, the last one, not in, you know, all this isn't a beautiful component, not the one, two, three, four, but another one is based in the spiritual values that people bring when they participate in those processes. So it's not based in a prescriptive code or a process, but it's based in the, around this beautiful person that needs protection, the one that has been harmed, and with the spiritual values that eat each one brings solidarity, love, understanding, and they explain what that means and they are going to abide by them when they are together. So that's why it's the hope for the schools that when a child is learning by doing wrong, oh wow, what a beautiful opportunity that they can get together with others that love them and care for them to talk about it and go to the roots and they understand what they did, what they do, because you, we all have been children in many ways, and we didn't know why we did what we did, the harm others. What a beautiful opportunity to, to see what that is all about. And restorative justice is being applied in education and the criminal justice systems in creating democracy and um, trauma healing, massive violence, domestic violence, because is the way how we should live centered in satisfying human needs that arise for who we are. We have a mind, so we need a narrative. We have a heart, we need belonging. 
we need a body, so we need autonomy, and we have a spirit, regardless whether you believe or not in a religion or a God. Whenever you make a call that is immaterial for the good of society, of yourself, for me, in my perspective, you are a spiritual being, like creating something that is invisible. Therefore, that is part of the beauty of being human. So it takes account the wholeness of the human being. That's why I love that justice. Justice means just relationships. And I have to say also in regard to what we were talking before that we, we function, you said, Robert, in a different way as Latinos. Yes, we are made even collectively, culturally with a collective society framework. That's why whoever wants to understand will have to see we work thinking and family, not in our individual success. Our collective success is, is what it matters. And that's what we do, what we do. But that's what we have so far go as Latinos. But we come from the indigenous people. We got that from the indigenous people. And now not only the collective societies as Latinos and many others, Muslims, African-Americans, etc but also the individualistic societies have to find their, what can I say, their hope in learning from the indigenous people because they are not only connecting with others, for them being one means one with nature. Can you believe how much we will stop polluting the waters, the earth, and how we will create industries that are socially responsible, naturally responsible, naturally friendly, if we will understand what it means to be one, but this separation that whatever we eat is from the nature, no, it becomes who we are. And our children are dependent on us to understand that from the indigenous people and incorporated now that we are in a crisis in, the, in Mother Earth, crisis of every source, biodiversity, ecosystem, sea level rise, and, you know, all that is together creating climate change. Yeah, I think what you said is so important. I, I wonder, <clears throat> perhaps Ronnie has some uh, has some feelings about it, too. One of the things I, str I still struggle with it, um, and I know a lot of leftists and a lot of activists struggle with it, is the uh, the spiritual sense of it, if you want to say, or, or having some being driven by love and hope, uh, because it is, while it's not specifically religious, it's also not, um, you know, it's not necessarily like science. You have to have, you have to feel it to do it. Um, and I sort of mentioned it before about, you know, the, the, the communities in which you grew up um, sort of fostered that idea. Um, but yeah, it's hard for a lot of people who probably found religion, quote unquote, in, as part of the hierarchy but aren't able to, and, and once you sort of dispose of that idea, you're not able to then sort of internalize love, hope, solidarity, and things that are more spiritual about your community, or as you said, you know, this, what you might get from an indigenous uh, community, you know, a, a connection to just the earth and, and to nature, um, which, you know, a lot of activists and advocates, you know, in the 21st century are struggling with, I think. Um, I don't know, Ronnie, do you have any any thought about that no i i just agree with charito i mean the vast majority of hispanics especially the older generation of hispanics are very tied to their religious 
um, you know, and spiritual beliefs. It's a, uh, it was part of my upbringing too, to be fostered into a, a Catholic, um, you know, religion and believing that the, you know, that the greater good is for others and not for ourselves. And I think that's something that we carry as, as a Hispanic culture, whether we come from Mexico, from Spain to um, South America, religion is just one of the biggest uniting, I think, things for us. Um, and so how do, like, and like you said, Robert, about, um, you know, activism, how do we use religion to further advance activism and, and encourage people to get involved in their communities, right? Um, and I think religion could really, is part of that. Um, but again, younger generation of people are, are um, and, I, and I'm personally one of them that I don't follow the, the, my religion as closely as my parents have. Um, but I think it's a trend that, that as the younger you get, the less likely you are going to follow religion. Yeah, I mean, luckily, I mean, the as you said, I think there's a there's a great tradition in Central and South America, especially uh, of the of the Catholic, uh, you know, sort of liber you know, de decolonizing liberation um, community, um, where you know that that tradition doesn't exist as much in North America, say, um, but. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm the same way. You know, I don't follow the religion of my parents. I don't even consider myself, uh, I consider myself an atheist. But that doesn't change the fact that I have to, from a human standpoint, figure out how to find, like, love for everybody's humanity and myself to do any of this, whether it's justice work, um, education work, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, I, I think about that particular issue a lot. And, and again, because of the Latino and, and Hispanic tradition, of at least Catholicism being much different than it is, say, in the United States. Uh, I am Catholic. I'm going to always be Catholic until I die. However, my definition of Catholicism is not the patriarchal. It's not the um, macho. I cannot understand my church, Catholic church, not giving the, the respect to women that we are wanted from the Taliban. Okay, we're criticizing the Taliban right now because of the mistreatment of women. I am asking the hierarchy of my Catholic Church when women can be priests, when women are going to be respected, because they, I know that women go with the husbands to become deacons. Guess who gets to become deacon? The man, not the woman, even though she was in all the classes. That for me, I hope that is changing. That's the last thing that I learned about deacons a long time ago. I hope that is changing, but the women preschool has not. So we live in a very patriarchal society where religion have played an incredible role to seal that mentality. And the, and the consequences of that type of mentality um, it's tremendous because it goes beyond the religion. It justified an economic system that is predatory, plantation capitalism. Uh, and we're embedded and we're paying the consequences every single moment of having allowed a representative uh, uh, system of democracy 
to replicate the same patriarchal, no matter how many blacks or how many women are there, they replicate the same patriarchal. They say it represents us, they don't represent us, they fight us. Um, so yes, I, I think that is very, very important to stop this triangle of domination of power over people with a lovely, wonderful circle of respect that the indigenous people and the collective societies, deep collective societies in the world um, were, uh, try to make us understand is the moment I think that we decolonize our mind, that we unlearn what we learn in order to be say that we are alive in this world, that we, our lives have meaning. We need to question ourselves and in, in make that transition yeah that's definitely uh, a type of uh, catholicism that i can get behind <laughs> for sure absolutely um so the next topic i think um i want to talk a little bit about voting rights um i guess the way i want to frame it is like this um i know that the population uh and our, our numbers in delaware uh, our, our increase in from the last census has been fairly significant uh, of 10%, I think, or 11% in overall population, I think we're probably going to see uh, a, a big uh, growth in Hispanic and Latino population, too. Uh, if, th if those demographic numbers haven't even come out yet, I'm not positive. Um, but what we saw in the last election, in the 2020 presidential election, uh, was actually significant gains for Trump and reactionary politics uh, within the Hispanic community, um, specifically in border towns in, in Texas um, and in uh, New Mexico. And when asked why um, these largely um, Hispanic towns voted the way they did, uh, mostly it was based on relief payments, child credits, extra unemployment, etc., that people just associated with Trump and the Trump administration because they were um, they were given benefits and support uh, and that's what, how they associated that and so we saw actually big Republican gains in a lot of those communities so I guess uh, from a voting rights standpoint and in the communities that you guys are in grassroots um, what how how are, are do you feel like you're making gains or are votes voter voting rights being protected at least in Delaware and how is this uh, sort of dynamic of population increase uh, playing out um, politically? I'll throw it to Ronnie, I guess, because I he's he's the he's our polished political man. I was hoping that Chadito would go first. Uh, no, no, I see. I saw you. I saw your face. You were like, I don't know if I want to answer this. I said, Oh, you're answering it, pal. So. Um... Yes, so you made a great point about um, Hispanics and uh, voters across the country. And I think a great point to begin with is that Hispanics and Latinos are not monolithic. We're not, we can't just put a blanket over them and say they are a Democratic base or they are a Republican base. There are different, um, you know, uh, there are different views within different sub communities within our community. So, for example, Cubans and um, for example, Cubans tend to vote more conservative than Central Americans or Mexicans, um, only because of uh, everybody's you know different circumstances in their home countries. Um, but in Delaware, for example, I think we have a the the right to vote. I think is is um, uniquely and it's unique and it's also 
protected um, because we just have a democratic um, state. We're just a democratic state where we have a democratic governor who supports voting rights. We have a super majority in both houses of cha- of the state chamber. And most of these decisions are, you know, up to the state. So when it comes to Hispanic voters in Delaware, however, there's a unique circumstance, and I think Charito can, you know, elaborate this on this further, but, you know, there's, there are people who can't vote um, because of their documentation status or because they don't know how to register or they're just not, you know, inspired to, to vote. And I think those are three different topics that, you know, we can dive into. The first, I think the lack of documentation is one of the most um, severe ones that we need to address as a society, because again, just using the COVID-19 pandemic as as an example, most of the frontline workers were black and brown people, um, especially undocumented immigrants. And nobody talks about this at a, in, in a sense of urgency. But undocumented folks have been working in the chicken plants, which have been, you know, COVID-19, a COVID-19 hotspot. They've been out in the fields. They are the first people that other people come in contact with. Um, and their employers are, have been not protecting them um, with face masks, with um, safety distance protocols. And the vast majority of them have families. They send their kids to school. They don't have the transportation needs um, in some communities, especially down here in Sussex County, to seek medical attention. They may not get the time off by their employer to go seek medical attention. Um, and their children have no one to be to, to be there with them um, during you know, school hours, especially during the pandemic when schools were shut down. Many of these families had to, you know, especially women, had to stay home or give up their employment, um, which, you know, had helped them and their households keep up with, um, you know, with money in the household. And so these are real things that are impacting real people and the not, and not having the ability to vote hinders their ability to move forward as a community, as our community, because they don't get a say. Georgetown, for example, is, I think the, the population of Hispanics is 40%. But the voting numbers for Georgetown, for people who are able to vote who are Hispanic, are, are not 40%. And the representation that they're getting at the state level are, is not the same as what their ideologies are. Um, so those are some of the things that you know, we need to address. Um, and immigration is usually a federal issue, but there are things that our state legislators can do here in, in the state of Delaware. Um, one of the things is, you know, the driving privileges card. We have one for our undocumented folks, but there should be no barriers to getting one. And when retrieving one, there should be no difference between a driver's license and a privilege card. And there should be no difference in the title of it. Um, it should be a driver's license for all um, because just having a privilege card can, you know, people can have an, a, a bias or they can, um, you know, they just can have different mindsets on what um, those driving privileges card cards are. And so, you know, these are just small things that we can do and address some of the systematic things that affect our communities. But 
voting is essential. And one of the things that I want to thank Charita for is for her for her uh, Votamos uh, coalition um, effort to not just increase awareness of, of, of why it's important to vote at all levels, not just at the federal level for presidential elections or for statewide elections, but also your local school boards. You know, when I ran for school board, um, I saw a huge turnout of young people, of first-time voters, minority people who came out for the first time, have never heard of a school board election. But it is these elections and, and these positions that matter and that directly affect them as people here living in Delaware. And thanks to, and thanks to Ronnie, now we will be aware that there is something to do when he runs again. And, uh, and he being there is going to make us aware of all the tricks that I played inside to avoid us to know that there is even an uh, uh, election coming. So that is the difference of the power of Latinos. But I, I guess you want me to talk about voting. I, I would love to. I would love you to. <laughs> yes, well, I agree with everything that Ronnie said. Um, because what we are, we, we embrace, we Latinos, first of all, I'm going to call Latinx, Latinx, Hispanics, okay? Because of respect of all the people that belong to the uh, LGBT community. I have, I have friends that have shown me the pain of being ignored, being that they are not women or men. So where are they in society? Language is so important. So my, my part of the, the leadership that I can uh, provide is to call ourselves Latinx Hispanics because that embraces all the ways how Latinos want to be called. But the X include all those that have not been included. And so we, the Latinx Hispanics, we have incredible multiple um, identities. We embrace from the country origin to the color of the skin, to the generational status, the, the country history in relation to the international and economic policies of the United States government um, and regional culture. It's an incredible complexity. So when, uh, as Ronnie said, they wanna put us in a monolithic group, you are lo losing our votes. You are not going to reach us. And such complexity therefore requires, you know, that politicians pause and think if they really want to get our votes, what they need to do. And I can tell you, it's not going to worry you show up for elections. You have continually becoming friends with us. How I started in the Democratic Party in, in uh, Lancaster, you know, I was kind of new. I didn't know anyone, but I always wanted to serve. So when they said, let's clean the graffiti, of the streets, I said, let's go. And then I realized it's a huge act of rebellion against the guns <laughs> because those are their newspapers, you know, but we did it. And the guy that was with me, I just admire him for his dedication with me. Then I realized he wants to run for city councilman. And I said, I'm gonna vote for him. See, that's the difference. That's what we need to do. We need to involve the community in social justice, uh, little enterprises, little uh, actions. And then it's when you are gonna, when we see you working for us, then we're gonna give you our vote. And that ha cannot come just because you are running. You have to be with us all the time because our complexity 
requires that you meet us in the bottom, the bottom needs, our human needs, our seeing us as somebody that want to contribute to, they want to make, that wants to make a change, whatever we are, you know, whatever we are. So um, uh, I think we have demonstrated nationwide that we are a force. The sleeping giant is no longer sleeping. When Arpaggio, Sheriff Arpaggio, was creating racist regulations uh, by which every police or anyone can stop us just because of the way we look, and the definition of the way we look was up to everyone else. Um, what we did, we organized in Arizona and Latinos uh, working out of his office, no longer uh, elected after 20 years in the place. That's, that's organizing. We are not sleeping, we are awake. When they touch our heart and they, our children are threatened, we will act. And then thinking Nevada, you know, that was amazing too. Why Latinos were the ones that make the difference in elections at that time for Bernie Sanders and, for, and later on for Biden, um, even though he still had to show us that he was worth our, our vote. But uh, in relation to what I do, you know, I, it's good and it works when you say your vote is your voice, but fine, fine, I don't have any problem with that. However, what I do is to think of my undocumented people, to give them the human development capacities that they already have, but we need to think in that approach because that's what needs what they deserve. And uh, what we do and Botamos We Vote Coalition is that we reach out to undocumented people and we don't let them close the door and not saying, no, I can't vote because I'm not a citizen. Their lights, their eyes light when we tell them, you know what, you can talk to your children that are over 18. Be my voice, because I don't have a voice in this democracy. You are my voice. And tell that to the neighbor, to the comadre, tell to your coworkers, and make sure they register and they go to the polls. Because through a system of, of texting, we can keep those messages alive and reach out to them. Everybody has a cellular. They may not know how to go to the computer, but, and, and that is an important effort. If we conscientiously go to undocumented people, you know, they are the ones that they have everything to lose when the wrong president is in the White House. We have shown. So now what we need to be talking about all over the place in every single moment as Latinos is to call now, now, now to Carper, to, to Coons in, uh, Richard, in, in Bland Rochester because they need to keep and include um, the path to citizenship for 10 million undocumented people in the reconciliation bill from Bernie Sanders. That's the deal. And you know what? That put the Democrats in the corner, in the little corner, because the reconciliation bill is gonna pass only with Democrats. So we went, they need to remember that we went through the trauma of Obama, the man that we love to become the deported in chief. He gave us DACA, but DACA was a, a sort of two, 
ends. Um, and then the trauma of having um, the former president elected. So um, it's a trauma and Democrats need to understand they are gonna make it or break it in the reconciliation bill if they include or not include the path to citizenship for 10 million people. We are watching them, they need to do it. What they have to gain if they do is the new generation of Latinos, 18 and older, indebted to them for the rest of their life because they heal their parents. They heal themselves because there is nothing worse for a human being that to be afraid that mommy and daddy may not come back tonight at home. So they need to think in the trauma that inflicted in all of us and that they have now. Now they have only Democrats the opportunity to make it for Latinos and to put us in, our, in their pocket even though we will be jumping up and down for the rest of the things, but they, we will be on their side. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get behind that 100%. I mean, there's absolutely no question that um, all of these folks should be on, put on a... Actually, they just should be citizens. Uh, the, the, the guidelines should be very loose, uh, and, and we should, you know, uh, end, end this problem. I mean, see the humanity in people and, and, and end the problem. However... Um, that doesn't guarantee anything. We're still going to come after you every every time. <laughs> but yeah, you, you haven't you haven't won me over completely. But that's something that um, yeah, it's it's just it's a it's a very important aspect to all of this. And and I hope that I hope that everyone is is uh, the humanity is seen in everyone, and people are put on the road to to be fully recognized because it's it's the only proper thing to do. One hundred percent. It, and it's not only the right thing to do, it's the needed thing to do. Without immigrants, there won't be enough workers to pay the social security for the next generations. We are an aging uh, society. There is no more children made enough in this society at this point where the new flesh is coming from immigrants. So you don't need to be nice to us. You need to be fair with yourself and with the future of America. Yep. Well, I have one more big topic and then maybe a fun one, but I, I just want to, I don't know if you guys have any feeling about this or how it kind of plays into a lot of the immigrant issues in your communities, but I did see yesterday in Bloomberg Law that uh, the federal court has allowed the Poultry Workers Union um, to be able to sue and uh, uh against regulations about line speed and poultry plants. And I know it sounds a little bit wonkish. Um, basically what it is was the, F the USDA said you, you could do chicken lines faster and it's very dangerous. The union tried to uh, push back against that. They were told that they couldn't do that because it was a federal regulation, but they won their court case yesterday. So it was a, it was a victory for, for poultry unionized poultry workers yesterday. And I think about that a lot because um, I think a lot of our organizing power um, in these communities are going to come from are going to come from workers unions and people out just, you know, working class people working for a living. Um, maybe Ronnie can can talk a little bit about um, how that kind of stuff factors into all the sort of organizing that we're doing in the Latinx Hispanic community. So I will say that 
you know, anytime a union can organize, I think is beneficial for the workers. And, you know, because we've seen predatory employers who take advantage of the most vulnerable among us, and those are the undocumented folks, especially here in Sussex County. And many of them just don't know their their rights, right? Um, either as a union or separately as collectively as individuals um, uh, in their voting power and their voting rights. Here in when when the pandemic first started, the chicken plants were, and not just the chicken plants, any any industry that employs you know undocumented immigrants. You know, we're using undocumented immigrants to continue the, you know, the, the work um, while many of the, you know, uh, documented folks could get, um, you know, unemployment or they could seek financial assistance elsewhere. Undocumented folks were prevented from doing that. They couldn't get um, the COVID-19 grants that were given out, um, the um, assistance um, the, that were given out, they weren't able to access them either. And so they were basically forced to work um, because if not, who was going to feed their children? Who was going to bring, you know, the next meal to their table? And, you know, people don't talk about it. Uh, people don't talk about how, you know, immigrants are essentially, you know, uh, and I'd like to refer this as to, you know, they are, you know, frontline workers because they are. And without them, and like Charito said earlier, without them, we wouldn't have, um, everything that we have today, um, whether that's contributing to social security or contributing to um, other forms of, of um, into other forms of our society. And so I think that this ruling is good for unions and hopefully this is an empowerment for those communities here. Um, it is hard and challenging sometimes to get people to step out of their comfort zone, to unionize or to do advocacy, especially um, people in these in these places um, uh, that that are constantly working, but we need people like us who can speak the language, who can identify with their um, uh, with their challenges, and people who can actually explain to them what their rights are and how they 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 can unionize. Because at the end of the day, if no one helps them or no one advocates for them, they won't see themselves as an empowerment group and they should be yeah. well less oh no i'm sorry go ahead Charito. i i do want to say something about that because uh, i agree completely it's it's um the the workers should have the power because they are in the trenches they know the risk they take and they should be listened to and and everything that we create in society needs to be created to satisfy human needs not to exploit uh, humans, which is the case of corporate um, institutions. Uh, you know, I have to mention this. Sam Wilson, the, the county commissioner in Sussex County, in a formal conference call, when the idea of testing, because there was no vaccination at the beginning, remember the whole year without vaccines, but testing came up, he said the famous words that reflect so much to the core of corporate industry. He said, what a damn idea to test Latinos working in the poultry industry. They will just not come to work. 
we have already killed one million chickens. If that paradigm of his doesn't move the core of our being in order to understand how racist the system of corporate industry is, what else is going to do it? We need to think that we are embedded and we have buy into a racist corporate system that exploits people, that created the 1965 law of that created the people that are documented and undocumented, two types of people that never existed before. It was a creation, a social creation to benefit the industry that needed stable jobs. Because what it happened before 1965 is that Latinos come and go. They got the money for the little house they want to buy. They went back to their family and so forth and so on. They didn't have a stable workforce. This law of 1965 created entrenched them and with invisible walls, they were never able to come back. So um, we need to always do the analysis of the huge scope of things that we are embedded in. Exploitation of human beings because of racist ideas such as the ones of Sam Wilson run the business now. And it's running now with, um, with something that the industry wants to do now. They are proposing a euphemistic, it sounds so good, isn't it? What it is is a refinery to make methane. Uh, and methane gas is better, it's, you know, it can kill you. So that's what they want to do in C4 with the poultry industry for 20 years, with cars coming with the waste from the other poultry industries from Virginia and Maryland. And there is, is a residential community. So we need to tell each other all these truths in the media. I'm glad that you invite us to talk about these things because the, the extreme media doesn't talk, doesn't talk about these important things. They are naturalizing that there is a need of this refinement. Why? Why there is a need? Because industrialized poultry uh, should not be that way. It's doing the wrong thing. We were more healthy when little farms had the opportunity to have chickens. The, the industry of the poultry destroyed the farm culture and the farm families. And now the, the, the so-called um, biogas bio refinery is going to give, uh, you know, give them um, the opportunity to continue and grow more. There is Latinos, 40% of Latinos live in the nearby trailer. And if there is an explosion like have happened in this biogas, so-called biogas refineries, like in India and many other places, who is going to pay for the damage to human beings? Who is gonna breathe the air? Who is gonna deal with the polluted water that they are gonna produce? The industry should exist to provide for human needs with social responsibility and natural responsibility. We are in the wrong model. We can be wonderful. And if we will put our mind to it, I think America can make it happen. 
We can be the organic country of the world. We can do whatever we can, especially when we stop the wars and put the money in investment directly into people. Absolutely. Well, you brought up a great point that I want to end on because I want to get your your um, feedback on it because I frankly don't know. I mean, I get secondhand information sometimes, but I don't know how to how to process it because I've just started getting more into local media. Obviously, I got my microphone here. I got the Delaware Call. I know so now I'm in. I'm local media. Uh, I'm a I'm a fake journalist now. Um. And so I've run into stories that have been on um, Spanish language uh, radio uh, and and Spanish language uh, media and internet, and and also across the country. And I guess it, radio kind of mirrors, you know, all the, the the talk radio across the country, which is mostly conservative or reactionary talk radio. And my understanding is that Spanish language uh, radio is also has a, 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 a somewhat conservative uh, bent. Um, would you say that that's true? And, and what is the audience for that? Like, how does that, how does that kind of Spanish language media play into the? And if it, you know, if it does have a conservative bent, uh, how does that play into the organizing that um, you all are trying to do? Oh, you have talked. You have touched a very important core issue. You know, every Sunday, that's where the breeding of ideas of white supremacy in, in, in white supremacy Christianity are being taught in the churches to justify it like they did justify the slavery. Now they justify the way things are, going everything to the top and not to the bottom. So um, the media is just a reflection of where the money goes as far as I knew, 80% of the media out there is right-wing. So this is what we are against. Corporate is taking over. There is corporate socialism in this country, and they don't want to say it, but the rhetoric, as long as being repeated and repeated, have this effect that, for example, in Ohio, Nina Turner was not elected, even though she was the woman that was talking about the issues of people, but they managed to put all the money to the store. This amazing woman that had been working for years for the right thing for people. Money talks. It talked to Nina Turner um, because she was the favorite and they managed to change. It talked in Nicaragua when, uh, you know, they couldn't reelect the socialist uh, government because United States poor in this tiny 3 million population country, 10 millions at that time in the 80s. And of course, uh, Chamorro won because of that money. Money, money is the essence of what is going on. It's manufacturing consent. And this is what we are really against. So we just have each other. So we just have a real connection. That's why politicians need to knock on the doors to real see the people in clean graffiti, clean the streets. So we can bring this change from the grassroots to the top to make real change. So um, yeah, it's, it's huge. What you just thought is huge. And uh, yeah, it re requires many, many more radio programs to explain. <laughs> yeah. But the media, as we have it now, is, uh, is a reflection of where the money goes. 
uh, even in the New York Times, the so-called journalist media for excellent money talks in the New York Times. So many people have been getting out of, you know, working then fired for saying the wrong word. The, the reason why, for example, Colonel Powell became the general is because he was saying yes, Massa, all the time, you know? And when he knew there was no mass uh, weapons of mass destruction, he still said, okay, Massa, let's have the word. So we just, at the top, when we have representatives such as Obama, Powell, and all the uh, black leaders and Latino leaders, they continue getting there to say, yes, patron, si patron, yes, masa, to corporations. And that is very sad. And that's why we need Ronnie's in this world, because Ronnie is loyal to what made him Ronnie, his parents, his community. And that is going to make the difference. He is going to be our governor in the future, the first Latino. You, Charito, Charito, you read my mind. You're, you were talking, I'm listening to you talk, and I'm thinking, okay, well, the last, my last word is going to be to Ronnie, and then you bring up Ronnie, and I'm like, that's great, because my last question is going to be, you know, this only has a small listenerships and a small audience, and we, we promise not to, um, not to give any real important strategy away, but can you tell us what your road is to the governor's house? I mean, what's your next step? How are you going to, because I, I know this is happening. We're going to make this happen. But, like, what's your next step? What's the strategy? Uh, and when, I mean, do you think you'll be governor by, in the next eight years, maybe 12 years? How's that going to work? So, yeah, I, I wish there was an easy road, and I wish people <laughs> had not... <laughs> I wish more people had opened the doors for people like me and Charito, people of color, to assume these positions of, of leadership. But to go back quickly to, to the point of, um, you know, conser the conservative bent on, on local media and the Hispanic network, it's a, it's a real reality and something that, you know, I thought of, but not really have had much of, I didn't pay much of attention to, um, because I personally don't listen to radio for my news. I actually like, re like to read more than I like to listen. Um, especially, um, I will say the exception is for my podcast in the morning when I go to work, but, and, and, and the Highlands Bunker podcast. <laughs> yes. And so there, there is a very conservative bent in the Hispanic media. Um, things that really affect our, our community um, are not really, um, you know, they're not taken as a, 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 as a, you know, primary matter for these local hosts. Um, some of the, I will say that some of them are, leaning towards, you know, providing more adequate information. But for example, this whole legislature uh, session, things that really would uh, help our, our community, including the $15 minimum wage, um, House Bill 75, um, you know, uh, expanding the, the absentee um, voting, um, and doing all of this, these things that the legislature was doing, none of it was talked about in our local media because it doesn't either fit their narrative or just they think that the people won't pay attention to them. And I think that's a problem because if you don't inform your public, then the public is not informed. And especially for Hispanic members who's, um, you know, when they drive to work during the morning or because some of them are illiterate, uh, um, unfortunately, they can only listen and they can only hear. So they get their primary news from radio hosts. And when these radio hosts don't provide the, these types of information to them, then they're not aware of what's going on. 
And it's even much of a problem um, for issues that are local, right? For example, again, I go back to school board. Most of the, these decisions before the governor uh, came out with his fast, a face mask mandate, most of these decisions were going to be made at the school board level. There was little you know, uh, messaging on part of the Hispanic media to inform parents that they should show up to the local school board, whether they spoke English or not, to advocate for it or just to provide their comment. And this is hurtful to our community and it's hurtful to our advocacy and our engagement process because the less likely you're informed, the less likely you're to engage. And so how do we use moving forward? How do we use the Hispanic media to to help us, right? Um, but then Charito made a good point that, you know, it's where money goes. You know, wherever, um, you know, whoever gets paid the most or whoever gets their funding, wherever they get their funding from influences what they will tell the public. Um, it's an unfortunate reality, but it's something that we're trying to, you know, work against. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to thank both of you. Uh, I'm going to try it again. Let's see how I do this time. Charito Calvachi Mateco. Got it. Yeah. So thank you, Chiricho. I, I look. I I'm, I'm always trying. I'm always improving. So thank you, Ronnie Balthazar Lopez. Thank you. I really appreciate you guys taking the time today. Um, everyone, uh, make sure we're going to link to uh, some interesting stuff uh, in the show notes. We'll also link to uh, Ronnie's profile uh, in the call. Um, and also, you can always go to uh, Patreon.com/slash/TheHighlandsBunker and throw in five dollars a month. Help us out. Support our work. Um, uh, Thank you, guys. Thanks, everyone. And uh, as you know, left is best.